If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6. We're covering a passage today that uh, is both simple and extraordinarily complex. It's complex not because the passage is complex, but because of our general lack of knowledge of the Old Testament and specifically a lot of the imagery that's used there. And so when we see it in the New Testament, it seems almost kind of strange. And the, the passage that we're going over is leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. And this takes place just to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And the slide that you see above me is probably the top option most archaeologists believe is where the Sermon on the Mount occurred. And it doesn't really look like much of a mountain, except if you look at the really small, in fact, you can barely even see it in the imagery, there are telephone poles and they're so small that you can't even see them. So it's much larger than it even appears in this image. It's just not what you would typically consider a pointy mountain like the Alps or even what you see around here in the blues. And so Jesus goes up on this mountain to preach. And we've, we've read it so much, if you've been in church very long, it seems kind of normal. But when I first heard that, when I first got saved, I'm like, that's kind of weird. Shouldn't you go to a church to hear someone preach or in their day synagogue? But what we don't realize, and what I'm hoping to do for you today, is as you mature in your faith in Christ, to realize the gift that we have in Christ, maybe far greater than you've really ever understood, and to see how the New Testament, and specifically how Jesus fulfills the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and how it begins to connect. So in order to do that, we're going to look at this again from the 10,000-foot level and look down. We're not going to go very deep into Luke chapter 6 because we're going to spend a great deal of time hopefully preparing you so as we just simply read through the verses here in a little bit, how it connects and comes alive. And you realize the greatness and the glory of who Christ is and what he did and how much better we have it now than we ever had before. And the best way I can do that to start out is with an illustration. And it's somewhat humbling. So I'm going to ask you, what is this? But you can't make any snarky comments, especially someone named Luke. All right. So what is this? The answer to that is me looking stupid. That's the answer. No, here's the deal. So... Um, I like to work out, and I like to do weights. I hate doing cardio, because no one has ever come up to me and said, Scott, that's a great pair of lungs you have there. No, they're usually like, hey, you look a little fit, right? So I don't like cardio. I don't like doing stuff that I can't see. But what I've discovered as I've gotten older and more mature, that I need to strengthen what are called core muscles and certain connective tissues. And by doing that, as one of my big bodybuilder friends was showing me, is you're beginning to strengthen those little muscles in your knees. And I didn't even know your knees had muscles and your ankles and balance. And by strengthening it all, how it all connects together, then you can begin to do the heavier weights and, and do things without hurting yourself. But the problem is you have to humble yourself and look stupid in the gym in front of everyone for a while. Not only that, but you have to be willing to step back and do the stuff that's not necessarily fun. And so in preaching, we often love to, to preach the stories of the Old Testament, maybe that you've heard, Adam and Eve, Noah, Samson, David, 
uh, all the great prophets. We know stories out of the Old Testament. And we know stories of the New Testament, Jesus walking on water, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, all these stories. But the connective stuff, that's not always fun to preach about. But here's the deal. As you grow more mature, as you want to share Jesus in your life, and you talk to unbelievers, well, they naturally just start at the beginning of the Bible and they open it up. And by the, by the time they've got to the Gospels, boy, they have all these questions about the Old Testament and why we do things and why we don't. And a lot of the times, immature believers are like, eh, I don't know. Let's just go to Jesus. <laughs> All right? We're not exactly sure how everything fits together. Well, the simple story is this. It's the story that they're hearing downstairs right now in Sunday school. Jesus is the answer to everything in church. And specifically, the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled all of the promises in him. And you can see it in the New Testament and specifically the Gospels if you have the imagery in mind as Jesus is going about his ministry. Otherwise, you're just thinking, oh, this is a nice Jesus story. He's preaching here. He's healing people there, casting out demons. That's cool. And you have no idea what he's really doing or why he's doing it. It's intentional. And this is where we're going to go. And, and I've realized in the past, I've messed up by, by sending you to too many scriptures. So I'm just going to bullet point a few things. You can take notes if you like. But this is, again, the mountain on which Jesus more than likely begins to preach among thousands of people. The question is, where have we seen this before? Where, why would Jesus do this as he's preaching the kingdom of God as he's bringing salvation to all the world. Well, we go to the Old Testament and you go to Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Samuel. So first of all, in the Old Testament, you have to understand this. The salvation event in the Old Testament was the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt, out of Egypt and into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. So this salvation event ties to what we see Jesus doing. And you'll see the imagery here shortly. Right off the bat, you see something very, very clearly, unless perhaps you just love this world. Anyone here ever wonder why, like when Jesus, when you like trusted Jesus, like, please, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. Come into my heart. I, I'll follow you as Lord. And you're wondering like, why didn't he just take me to heaven right then? It would have been so much easier, right? But now i got to live in this world all the while waiting to heaven. It just seems like this long waiting time, right? Maybe you get some blessings in there a while. You know, you have children, have the nice house, and you realize children can be both a blessing and a curse. And yeah, it's, it's a challenge. But that's the way it worked in the salvation event in the Old Testament. Yes, they were immediately saved, but they were in exile in this wilderness long before they ever get to enter into the promised land. And it was for a purpose. They were developing a faith in God. So your life has purpose, even though maybe you don't necessarily see it every day in your walk with God. It's this idea that you should develop faith and grow in God, not just get a three-bedroom house, raise two kids, and then retire early. There's a purpose to life. But unfortunately, the Israelites didn't always get it. And then God chooses Moses to lead his people 
He chooses a leader. He chooses someone to lead them to salvation. And in the New Testament, he chooses his son, Jesus Christ, to lead his people. And finally, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, they come in the wilderness of the Sinai to Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses to go up in the mountain where God speaks to him. But notice this, if you remember in the Old Testament, the people could not come to the mountain. Not only could they not come, but if they come to the mountain, they are killed. We haven't even read Luke, but on the Sermon on the Mount, do you recall a lot of people getting like whacked by God? (laughs) No, it's just the opposite. The people come to God and they're welcomed. There's this grace. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Moses brought the law. It came through Moses, but through Jesus, God brings grace and truth. There's this dramatic fulfilling of what isn't possible in the Old Testament. Well, what happens after this? Well, we read in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed, this is the covenant, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God speaking to Moses, this is the covenant. The covenant that they were never able to fulfill. They were never a kingdom of priests. The best they got were the Levites. They were all about Israel. As a matter of fact, rather than being light to the nations and all the earth that is God's, they were letting the nations influencing them and adopting their gods. They failed continually. But God gives them this covenant. Moses is there on the mountain. He receives these words and he comes down off the mountain and the people agree to enter into the covenant. Then Moses goes back up to the mountain along with Aaron. And so we see this expansion of who is allowed to be in the presence of God. Just pause here. Do you realize the blessing that you have in Christ? If you don't know Christ, then you are separated from God. But if you've made the decision to trust in Christ, his very spirit dwells in you. You don't have to go to a mountaintop somewhere. He is dwelling in you. You don't have to be afraid of God. He loves you so much, he indwells you. His presence. To hear from him. He is there with you. He's given us his word. Well, he gives a limited amount of his word to Moses on the mountain. And so he goes back up the mountain along with Aaron And God gives him the law, Exodus 19 and 20. Then finally, God confirms the covenant with Moses along with about 70 other elders on the mountain, Exodus chapter 24. But they couldn't go all the way up the mountain. So we see this gradual expansion, even in the Old Testament. The New Testament isn't this radical break from something that was set in stone in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was acting and he continues to change and reveal more and more and more in the Old Testament. And finally, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, connecting it all together. Well, what happens after this? Everything is good, right? Well, not quite. 
we read in Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. It says, Then Moses and Aaron and Naab and Abihu and 70 other the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness, for clearness. And then notice in verse 11, this is important later on when we look at Luke. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So we have this image of Moses going all the way to the top of the mountain. On the way up, he takes 70 people. And instead of God destroying them, it says he did not lay a hand on them. It's this really interesting imagery, a human imagery of God not touching the people. And you're going to see the exact opposite of this. This wonderful, beautiful picture here in just a minute as the people come to Jesus. But notice this. Can you think of anywhere else in the New Testament where we see this imagery of people going to Jesus on a mountain and they're having food? Yet they ate and drank, but in the New Testament, God provides the food. And instead of 70, it's 5,000 men, probably more than that. Incredible imagery of Jesus fulfilling what is just a shadow of the Old Testament. Things change radically. Well, doesn't go well from there. Before, Mount, before Moses even leaves the mountaintop, he stays up there for 40 days, communes with God. The people come back down. Aaron leads them, of all people, into rebellion. The golden calf incident occurs. They, they fail Moses before he even comes down. They don't get to enter the promised land. So Deuteronomy, you're moving from Exodus to Deuteronomy. Many of you may not know this. It's the sermons of Moses for the people of God before they go into the, the promised land. And Moses commands Joshua when they get into the land to basically essentially redo this covenant that they entered into. But they were to take them and stand before a couple mountains, one called Mount Ebal and one called Mount Gerizim. And they would stand before one and they would hear the blessings if they obeyed the covenant. And the other, they would hear the curses. And next week, when we jump into the actual Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are, and you hear the blessings. But then he says, the woes. Again, pulling directly out of the Old Testament, this imagery of a covenant that those individuals failed to fulfill. Finally, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 30, God leads Moses to restate the covenant at Moab, blessings and curses. Just pause here for a second. That's a lot of background, I know. But if you recall, in Jesus' ministry, there's both sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount, and in Luke, they often call it the Sermon on the Plain. And they're wondering, are they two different events, or are they the same event told from different perspectives? Often, the feeding of the 5,000. Is it just the feeding of the 5,000, or were there multiple events? Well, the answer is, it could be both. One, we see in Luke, there's a perspective of how he tells the story is different than John, and he has a purpose. So it could be one in that regard. But if you're looking at it from the fulfilling of the Old Testament, we see these major events, but they're repeated over and over and over again and retold to heighten and to call the people back. So it could be very well true that Jesus spoke multiple times on multiple mountains. Do not simply 
doubt the text as many modern critics have done of like, well, this is, it would be too odd for this to happen two times for Jesus to call these groups on top of the mountain and to do the same miracles. No, it would actually be perfectly in line and fulfilling the Old Testament. Well, I know I've bored you enough there, but now you get to see some pictures. We said that when Joshua enters the promised land, he, did, he does as Moses commanded him, and he sets them before two mountains. Once again, you might be thinking, Alps Mountains? Well, this is one of the mountains, Mount Ebal. And on the other side of the valley is Mount Gerizim. So you have two different mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. And they're both right by Shechem. So they're not very far apart. You could literally sit people at the base of the mountains. And in this valley, the echo, the voices could carry. It's this very real imagery of the people deciding. And you need to decide today yourself. If you want to follow Jesus, we're talking about mountaintop experiences. And let me help you to understand this decision. I don't know where you were at when you made or if you've ever made the decision to follow Christ. But when I was 13, I got invited to a camp. I've told you this before in Oklahoma. It's called Falls Creek. And Falls Creek is in the Arbuckle Mountains in southern Oklahoma. And the most beautiful thing about that camp with 4,000 kids attending, hearing the gospel for the very first time is they don't actually have enclosed buildings or they didn't at that time. They had very large buildings for the large gatherings. But after that, they got to break apart and you would get to go with maybe a group of about 20 or 30 people and you would go to these small enclosures that were open air, just had a roof over you on the side of a mountain. And it was so different. I'd been in the mountains and out in the wilderness a lot growing up as a kid. But to be out in the wilderness on the top of a mountain looking at all this creation, all the beauty below you, gathered together with other people who were trying to decide as you're opening up God's word and hearing his word, whether you were going to even acknowledge God, and then whether or not you would follow God. And you not only had the word as a testimony to who God was, but you would look out and you would see God's glory and his creation and his power. And it was this incredible event. But it was a time in which you had to decide. And I decided to follow Jesus. But the people here They're standing at the base of these mountains and they're having to decide, do I reject the word of God? And if so, deal with the curses that come with it. Or do I go over to this mountain and do I accept the word of God and obey and receive the blessings? They said they would agree. A lot of people in church say that very same thing. But it's not about head knowledge It's about a true decision to go up the mountain. So that finally brings us to our text today in Luke chapter 6. Very, very quickly, going through Luke chapter 6, verse 12. The decision the people were making about Jesus. Hopefully you've made this decision. Another mountaintop experience in the word of God. It says, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer. So the imagery out of that Old Testament experience where Moses goes up on the mountain and receives and communes with God, the very word of God and talks with God, same imagery. Jesus continues all night in prayer to God. 
That's a lot of talking, folks. When's the last time you prayed all night? When's the last time you had enough to say all night? To sit there and talk with God. Verse 13, it says, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. This number 12 is important. At that time, most scholars believe only two and a half tribes were left of all the tribes of Israel, Judah, Benjamin, and half the tribe of the Levites. That was it. There is no hope for the kingdom. Yet Jesus chooses 12 individuals representing the tribes. The fullness of the kingdom has not died. There is hope. But a greater kingdom is coming and has arrived. This 12 number is unique for these apostles. There will be others in just a second. He he names them as apostles and uses a common word of that day that usually meant sent one or messenger, and he applies them to the 12. But the 12 were unique. Later on in Acts, as we see Judas after he dies, in order to replace Judas, you had to be an eyewitness to all of the ministry of Jesus from the very beginning, as well as being sent and called. And and they choose to backfill through uh, God's will, an individual to backfill Judas. But the 12, both representative of all the tribes of Israel and a, a very definitive group of individuals in the history of the church, the foundation, along with the prophets, who he named apostles. Verse 14, you see Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. So we have a pair of brothers. And James and John, another pair of brothers. And Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot. For those of you who don't know, Zealots weren't just excited about stuff. That was actually a political group of that day. They were so zealous, if you will, for restoring the kingdom of Israel and casting off the Roman rule. They would carry knives around and they would, they would inspire rioting and insurrections. And, and during those, they would take the knives and stab people. They were a very radical group of people seeking, and this may ring true with you today, they were seeking their way for their desire of their view of a kingdom or a nation far different than God's plans. They were doing so by violence. He came out of that background, we believe. Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. In the other accounts of the apostles, we see a name called Thaddeus. We believe Thaddeus was kind of a second name for this other Judas. Because after all, who really wants to refer to someone as Judas, right? I I know many of you had kids recently. I haven't seen too many Judases, right? You're not naming Judas. Like, oh, this is my son Judas. And you're like, really? You're going? And if, if we have any Judases in here, I'm sorry. You got tagged with a tough one. Uh, but uh, hey, it, it, that is the way it goes. But we believe most of the time in scripture, he's referred to as Thaddeus. And then finally, you have Judas Iscariot who became the traitor. So he calls his 12, the apostles together. And remember, we see Moses, and then we see Aaron, and then we see the 70. And so now we have Jesus and his apostles, the 12. And then finally, in verse 17, it says, and he came down with them. So only the apostles got to go up and experience Jesus in this unique, historical way within the church. We believe there were only 12, and there remain only 12. There were other apostles, such as Paul, but the 12 were unique. 
He says he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. So lots of disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So if you're not familiar with what Israel looks like, this isn't all of us here in Baker going, you know what, I'm gonna go to church. Been locked up for a while, let's go to church. No, that, that is not it. As he begins to talk about the seacoast here, He's talking hundreds of miles. When is the last time you decided to go to worship and say, hey, honey, pack up the kids. We're walking a couple hundred miles through uncontrolled land, no police forces, through hills, arid deserts, all to go worship and encounter God. Like, husband would be like, I don't know, I have that much vacation. I'll have to talk to the boss. There's this amazing reality of the people. They're flooding in from all of Israel. Verse 18, who came to hear him. They came to hear God. You know, I use my phone like you do for a lot of things. In my sermons, uh, I have various different opportunities to use the phone not because I love to, but because technology can be a blessing, but it's a curse. And I, and I don't know about you, but Monday comes and I'm rolling through the day and I'm looking to hear from something other than what I'm focused on. Need a little decompression time, so to speak. Well, I've got my apps, got the Bible app here. I've got BBC News. I've got Fox. I've got Amazon app. I hear from the, do you know the Dallas Cowboys actually have an app? That's crazy. NFL app, the weather app, I hear from a lot of people during the day. But do they really provide any peace? I don't think so. If any of you have a Facebook app, I would encourage you maybe delete it. I don't see a lot of people these days on Facebook full of peace. But they've walked hundreds of miles to simply hear God. And those who are sick, it says this, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. It's one thing to desire God. It's an entirely different thing to no longer have a choice on life or death, but be staring death squarely in the face. And then you must decide. The old question, if you were to die right now, where would you spend eternity, heaven or hell? Just straight up question. If you were to die right now, where would you spend all of eternity? Well, these individuals were facing physical death and they came to Jesus and he healed them physically, but they also came to hear the message that would set them free from their bondage of sin and death. Once again, pulling that Old Testament imagery, setting free of bondage from slavery in Egypt. And notice this in verse 19 as we close. And all the crowd sought to touch him. I told you we, this, this passage that we looked at in Exodus and Deuteronomy would come back. It said, as 
these individuals, these seventies, came up onto the mountain. It said God didn't touch them, as in he didn't strike them down and kill them. Fast forward to Jesus in the new covenant, and God reveals this grace that was never seen. Unlike stopping touching someone, the opposite is true. The people got to come up not only to the mountain, but they got to touch God and not be killed or killed, but to be healed. They got to touch the very Son of God. For power came out of him and healed them all. With Jesus, he fulfills all that was just a shadow in Moses and the law. We move from this distant God who only a very few get to commune with to all who have Jesus get to experience the indwelling of the very Son of God. It's an amazing amount of grace. Because I don't know about you, but as I stand here today, I think of my own heart and my own life. Like, why would God want to dwell with Scott? It's called grace. If you've never made that decision to experience that grace, I would encourage you to do it today. You might have all sorts of issues with God and anger. You might have, why did God allow this? Why did God do that? Legitimate questions. But I I don't want to focus simply on the why did, but I want to focus on the very truth that we know and the grace and the love that he's shown. Maybe someday you'll get your answers to the why questions. Maybe you won't. But should you pass up this amazing grace just because of the why questions? And if you know God today and you have a decision to pick up the phone and decide, do I want to hear from God or do I just want to search the net? I encourage you. Do what the people did in that day. Realize the gift that they had. To travel 200 miles if necessary to hear from God. We saw in the service today little children memorizing God's words so they could hear from God all day. How much effort have we made to hear from God every moment of every day? It's not His word in our heart. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you for your grace as we go to these smaller services. We're going to continue to try and meet together and hopefully grow into even a larger church. But I pray that that you truly seek God. You don't have to go up onto a mountaintop. You can do it where you're at right now, right here. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so very much for the extraordinary opportunity that we have to worship you in person to experience you relationally father as we sing let us truly praise you not just in words but from our hearts thank you for your forgiveness 
your mercy and your love, your deep abiding love, that you would send your only son to die for us. Help us to be faithful and obedient in keeping your word. We love you and we praise you. Amen.